Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We're excited about today, and I'm going to jump right in. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, uh, you can go with me to John chapter 19. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look on the screen. Every note that I have will be on the screen. John chapter 19, and I want to take a moment, and I want to look at the very first Easter Sunday. But to fully understand Easter Sunday, we have to go back. We're going to go back to the beginning of the week. It's, it's Passion Week. If you were here last week, we talked about the triumphal entry. And this Passion Week, this last week of Christ's life, it started on a Sunday. It started on a Sunday afternoon, and Jesus had been with Lazarus. He had raised him from the dead. He was in a town called Bethany, and he's going to leave Bethany, and he's going to get on a donkey that's never been rode, and he's going to ride into Jerusalem. And we saw that last week as he is riding in, the people that are there for the Passover festival, they're there performing a religious ceremony. We see them leaving the festivities to run to Jesus. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's, it's not about performing a ritual. It's about leaving the rituals and running to the feet of Jesus. And that's what they do. And they're throwing their cloaks down and they're yelling, Hosanna, which means save us now. That was, that was the Sunday. That was a week before today. It was on the Monday that, you know, Jesus, I like this other part of Jesus because we always see the compassionate Jesus, you know, with the, the kind of pale face that just kind of looking like, He's a little weak. But then you see the side of Jesus where he goes and he, on the Monday, he curses a fig tree and it literally dies. He just looks at it and says, you're cursed. And the fig tree dies. And then he goes to the temple and goes in and they're exchanging money. He goes there and starts flipping tables over. So I like that Jesus. That's, that's, on, that's the Monday Jesus. We, we always see the Sunday Jesus, but there's the Monday Jesus. Then there's the Tuesday Jesus where he, he goes and he's, he's teaching his disciples about faith and he's, he's challenging the religious leaders and and then on Wednesday, he's, he's spending some time probably with the people that he loved the most. It's probably Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, here's where the plot thickens. It's, it's Thursday. And here's where the conflict is going to occur. Thursday was, was Passover. And remember, they're there to celebrate the Passover. They're, Jesus is going to have a Passover meal the way that you're going to go home and have an Easter meal with your family to celebrate the resurrection. Jesus is going to have a Passover meal. They're going to celebrate when the angel passed over, the death angel passed over the homes uh, of, in Exodus. And so that's the meal that they're about to have. And it's at that meal that some things happen. First off, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He's, he serves them. Then he breaks the bread. They're going to receive communion together. During this course of communion, breaking of the bread, we see Judas run out. He tells them that somebody's going to betray him. We, we realize there it's Judas. Judas goes to the religious leaders. He sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. While Judas is doing that, Jesus gathers the disciples. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to ask them to pray with them for an hour. While he's there, here comes Judas with this detachment of Roman soldiers. And they're going to take Jesus into custody. They have nothing against him. They're, they're, he has done no wrong other than he's causing this upheaval in the religious community. They don't like it. So Judas gets them. They come. And now it's Jesus, Jesus is handed over to, to Annas. Annas is the former high priest. He has the job of trying to build a case against Jesus. They're going to interrogate him. They're going to see if some things stick. They can put some charges on him, and, and they can't. So this happens all through the night. So Annas hands him over to the current high priest, the head of the Jews. His name is Caiaphas. Caiaphas has five separate uh, trials, and, and they can't find anything against Jesus. So they said, you know what? There's nothing that we can do in Jewish law. Let's hand him over to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. Maybe the Roman governor can find some charges, and he can't. So he comes out, and he's in this big courtyard, and he's telling the crowd, I have two prisoners. One is Barabbas. This is the murderer. One is Jesus. I'm going to release one of them to you to go free. Who do you want us to release? This innocent man, Jesus, or this murder in the crowd says, release Barabbas. And that's what Pilate does. He releases Barabbas. And they said, and then he says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And this crowd who was screaming Hosanna just five days before starts yelling, crucify, crucify, crucify. And that's where we pick up our story. John 
chapter 19, it says this, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. When you see that word flogged, it meant that he was beaten with a cat of nine tails. A cat of nine tails had a handle and had nine cores on it like cattails. And these tails had razors and rocks and they designed them in such a way that whatever they would strike, it wouldn't just slap it, but it would penetrate and grab and pull. So every time they would strike Jesus 39 times with this cat of nine tails, literally flesh and skin and muscle would come right off the bone. It says the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They were mulberry thorns. They would be so sharp and so long they would penetrate his skull. The second they would put him on, the blood began to pour down his face. You couldn't even see his face. They would begin to pluck out his beard, hair by hair. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up again saying, Hell, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. The prophet Isaiah tells us at this point that the appearance of Jesus was so disfigured that he didn't even look like a human being anymore. They would then place on his shoulders a 300 pound beam. And it says in verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. He would walk three quarters of a mile uphill with this cross, this 300 pound beam. And then they would lay him on this beam and they would take nine inch nails and go through his wrists and his feet. And they, they would erect him. And it says, they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. He would be hanging on that cross for some six hours in agony. There would be onlookers and antagonizers. They were ridiculing him. They were spitting on him. They were mocking him. There was those that were even gambling for his tunic and his sandals. They were casting lots at the foot of the cross. Saying, I want his tunic. I want his sandals. He would have friends and family there watching. He couldn't say a lot of words. His lungs by this point were full of fluid, full of blood. He can barely breathe. Scholars and theologians would tell us in order for Jesus to breathe a breath or to say a word, he'd have to push himself up on his feet just to give his airways and his lungs enough space to expand. So if he said a word or a phrase, it was very, very deliberate. It was painful to breathe, it was painful to speak. And six hours after hanging on that cross, verse 28 says, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, say these next three words with me. It is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I want to preach a message to you this morning simply entitled, It is Finished. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for those three words. It is is finished. There's nothing that we can do to finish this thing by ourselves. So your son did it. Help us today to realize what those three words mean. It is finished. We thank you for your word and what you're going to do on this Easter Sunday in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. amen. It is finished. Rachel reminded me that there's really only two times I say that phrase. I, I do say that phrase quite often. Um, if I make it through a workout, <laughs> I've been working out with my wife and, um, we've been doing hit. Y'all know what hit is? Yeah, I don't, it, it's not fun. And so I don't, I don't, I don't like to work out. The only reason I work out is because I like her. And, uh, and so I'll work out with her. And then at the end, I was just like, it, it is finished. There's, there's this sense of elation when you finish. And then, and then, and then the other time, Every week when I write a sermon, uh, if I'm preaching that week, usually I write my sermons on Thursdays and uh, I'll, I'll take the whole day Thursday and then when I'm done, I'll fold up this portfolio that you see in front of me that I walk out with every week and I'll close it up and I won't look at it again until Sunday morning. So I'm not thinking about it Friday. I'm not thinking about Saturday. I'll just fold it up and I'll look at her and I'll say, girl, it is finished. Have you ever said those words when you've, you've completed something, a, a, a task, 
something that was hard. You made it through a, a hard season, a difficult season. Maybe it was something that you were expecting. It was a great thing. I remember when we, when we moved into this building and, and I remember Pastor Eugene and Miss Heidi uh, for years dreaming of a place where Opelousas could come and worship and building in the community for 11 years. And then when these doors opened, I remember Pastor Eugene, we were in the back and he said those words, it is finished. We, we probably all say those words, but when I say those words or when Pastor Eugene says those words, I don't think it carries the same weight as when Jesus said these words. When Jesus said, it is finished, I believe that those are the greatest words spoken by the greatest man on the greatest day in history. In English, we see three words. Say it with me one more time. It is finished. In the Greek text, if you realize how the Bible was written, it was written in Koine Greek, which is just a, a common language. It was an everyday language. Uh, it is finished is really one word. And the word is a word that you're going to hear many times today. So we're going to all say it together just to practice. The word is tetelestai. Everybody say tetelestai. Tetelestai. That's an interesting word. They would use this word very flippantly. And, and I want you to see that this is a very common word. It's an everyday word. But I also want you to see that if, if Jesus has to lift himself up just to get the lungs off of his ribcage to speak a word, if he's going to say a word, how many know he's going to choose that word very wisely? So when Jesus is dying, he, he has enough in him to, to pull himself up one last time. And when he does, the word that he says is tetelestai. It is finished. That word tetelestai in the Greek means the completion of a transaction. It, it means whatever the agreement was, it has now been fully and finally paid, paid in full. I want you to see this picture of Jesus, the innocent man on a cross dying for something he didn't do. And I want you to see that this word has this, this connotation of happiness and joy. It was a very happy word, but that's the word he's going to use. It's a, it's a word of joy. It's, it's a word of jubilation. The word testelestai always had to do with happiness and uh, being victorious. It had to do with, with a sense of achievement. So I found in history there's some different times that people would use this word because it was so common. I just want to give you a couple. Number one, artists and sculptures, when they finished their masterpiece, how I many know every artist and sculptor has like a masterpiece, it's their uh, Mona Lisa, that in the first century they would sign that work somewhere to Telestai, which means it ain't getting any better than this. This is the best that I can do. This is it. This is it. To tell us that, meaning it is finished. I can retire now. This is my masterpiece. The word was also used by merchants and bankers when they received their final payment. They got paid. How many know payday is a good day? They got paid. They would say, to tell us that. It's good. It don't get any better than this. How many know it don't get much better than payday? Okay. That's what they would say. Also, the word was used by priests and shepherds Whenever they would find a spotless sheep or lamb for a sacrifice, they would tell their assistant to tell us that. Basically saying, there is no better sacrifice. This is it. We ain't finding a better lamb. So I want you just to think for a moment when Jesus says this word to tell us that, when he says it is finished, this word has this connotation, association with joy and happiness and jubilation and gratification, and it can't get any better than this. And here's Jesus, almost completely naked, completely unrecognizable as a man, beaten. He can't breathe. He has nails in his hands and his feet. He, 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 he hasn't slept in two days. He is literally dying, breathing his last breath. And all he can say is it doesn't get any better than this. Think about that. Why, why in the world would Jesus choose this word to tell us that? Why would, he, why would he do this? I want to give you four questions that come out of this word, and I want to share with you on this resurrection day. Number one, write this down. Here's the first question I want to ask today. Maybe this will help make sense of it. Number one, what was finished? What was finished? When, when Jesus says it is finished, I, I'm happy now. Was he saying, I'm, I'm happy that this awful day is over? Was he happy to say, well, I'm now leaving earth to go be with my father and I don't have to put up with the shame of being on a cross? Was he saying that 
I'm happy that the physical pain is about to leave my body from being nailed on this cross. Is, is that what he's saying? No, no. He didn't say I am finished because he was just getting started. He says it is finished. In other words, his excitement and joy had nothing to do with something being finished in him. It had everything to do with something being finished in us. Watch what Hebrews says. Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What does that mean? Does that mean that enduring the cross gave him joy? Absolutely not. Enduring the cross did not give Jesus joy. What, what enduring the cross produced gave him joy. It wasn't fun for him to be on the cross that day. But when he said, it is finished, he knew what it was producing in his children. He knew the only way for us to be saved was for him to present himself as a sacrifice. So in essence, we were the joy set before him. For the joy set before him, for you were set before him, he endured the cross because he saw your face. He knew what it was going to take. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and it says he... Sat down. Thank you, Pastor You Y'all know when you sit down? When the work is done. He sat down because there's nothing else he can do. He did it all on the cross. It is finished. So what was finished? It is finished at its core addresses one thing and one thing only. The problem of sin. Everybody say sin. I know we don't like to say that word in church, but we all got it, so let's talk about it. Everybody say sin one more time. All right. If you have sinned, raise your hand. If your hand's not up, you're sinning now. It's called lying. (laughs) When Jesus said it is finished for the first time, he is enacting the termination of our debt that is incurred by sin. The first sin we know was the sin of Adam and Eve and They ate from a tree that God told them not to eat of. And so when that happened, sin came upon all mankind. Now, the sin wasn't the fact that they ate the fruit. The sin was the fact that they were disobedient to God. So the first question we must answer is, what is sin? Sin is any act of disobedience against God and his word. It doesn't matter what it is, how big it is, how little it is. If God says don't do it and you do it, it's sin. You tracking with me? Any act of disobedience is sin. Sin is sin is sin is sin. There's no layers or levels of sin. I hope you know that. It doesn't matter if it's, a, if, if it's a little white lie or if it's a serial killer. Sin is sin. Now, there's different consequences to earthly sins, right? Earthly consequences to sins. They're not going to throw you in prison for a white lie. They will throw you in prison if you kill somebody. How many of you understand that your sins on earth have a variable uh, of different consequences? On earth, spiritually, they do not. God doesn't delineate between sins, but we do, right? That's why we gossip about when she's shacking up. But we don't understand is your sin of gossip is just as big as their sin of shacking up in God's eyes. Why? Because sin is sin is sin is sin. And any act of disobedience against God or his word is sin. So let me ask again, how many of us are sinners? You just answered my second question. Who has sinned? And here's what scripture says in Romans. Romans says, for all have sinned. And Pastor Eugene looked up that word in the Greek. And you know what all means in the Greek? All. That means every person in this room, we got one thing in common, y'all. We nasty. We're, we're all sinners. And we're all, since we're all sinners, we, you must know the cost of sin because sin is expensive. What is the cost of sin? Now we know what sin is. We know who has sin. Now you have to put a price tag on sin. Here's what the cost of sin is. Watch this, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, which means sin has a debt. And if that debt is not paid, not only will you die a physical death, but you will die a spiritual death, which means if that debt's not paid for me, then I will spend an eternity away from Jesus in a place known as hell. That's what that scripture is. How do you pay it off? I remember when uh, Rachel and I first got married, uh, we were youth pastors. Let me translate 
that for y'all. We didn't make a whole lot of money. We were, uh, we were living in Birmingham, Alabama. We were youth pastors, and my dad had told me when we got married, save money. Well, how many know if, you, if you're only making peanuts, all you save is peanuts? But I was saving. I was saving everything and uh, had a little stash, you know, on the side. And so we were coming back to Louisiana for, for a holiday or a birthday or something. And my dad said, hey, we're going to get the kids together and we're going to go out to dinner. And so he does. He takes me and Rachel. We have no kids at the time. And my sister and her husband and my mom and dad, who's right here in the third row, we're going to go to this nice restaurant. Y'all know how nice of a restaurant it is? If you ever open up the menu and there's no price next to the meal, or if it says market price, that doesn't mean you go get it at the supermarket. Okay? It's one of those restaurants. So, but I've been saving. I'm a baller now. I mean, I can't afford Jordans, but I got some Nike, like the low line. I mean, I got it. And so we're, we're, we're going to, I make up in my mind that I'm going to bless. I, I want everybody to know that I arrived. So I get all my savings and I stick it in my pocket. And I've watched my dad because my dad's smooth. When, when the bill comes, you don't even know it's there. He just slides it, opens it up, slits his little credit card in, and then hands it to the, the waiter. And, and, and you never even know that it was paid for. That's how smooth he is. I learned from him. I'm going to do that to him. I got my wallet. I got my cash in my pocket. Y'all, we go to this restaurant. No price. Like, how expensive can it be? No prices? Good. We, we eat the meal. I don't even think about the meal. All I'm thinking about is I'm going to pay for this meal. Y'all, the time comes. I've been working hard six months as a youth pastor. I played a bunch of video games. Okay. The bill comes. I watched my dad do it. They put it between me and him. I open that bad boy up and I see the first number and I just slid it right on over to him. <laughs> Why? Because no matter how hard I worked, I realized there are some bills I just can't afford to pay. Listen to me. No matter how hard you work at religion, sin is a debt that you cannot pay. It doesn't matter if you've sinned once or 10 billion times. The debt is the same. And every human being has incurred a debt that you cannot pay. Have you ever had a debt that you can't pay? Come on, some of y'all have been paying on the same thing for 30 years. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, you've refinanced that thing, you've consolidated it, you're making payment after payment after payment after payment after payment, and you still can't pay it off. What am I saying? Mankind, because of sin, has a debt that we, we cannot pay. Why am I saying this? Because some people don't believe that statement. Some people believe that the debt of sin, given enough time and enough religion and enough good deeds and enough coming to church and enough saying prayers and enough being good, if the good outweighs the bad, that you can tip the scales and you can pay this thing off. The problem is, God doesn't grade on a curve. Anybody old enough to remember curves in school? Old people, help me out. Curves. Do they still do curves in school? They still do curves? No, nobody knows. Okay. Okay. Curves were great when you were a student like me. When you were a C student, you loved the curve. The way that the curve worked was you would find the difference between the highest grade in the class and the highest possible score, and you would add that many points. So if, if, if the highest grade could, the possibility was 100, but the highest score was only 15, 100 minus, or excuse me, 85, 100 minus 85 is 15, that means you would add 15 points to everybody's Score And so if the highest grade was an 85 and I made a 72, I went home and told my mom I made an 87. She thought I was smart. That, that's the, you with me, Pastor? You with me? Okay. That was the curve. The problem with my class was there was this one kid. I'm going to say his name. I hope he listened to this. He ruined so many things for me. His name was John Pyro. I like John until we took tests. Because John made a hundred on every single test. Did anybody have a John Pyro in their class? Raise your hand. Was anybody in here? You were John Pyro. Get out right now. <laughs> My
My GPA would have been 15 points higher if it wasn't for you. What am I trying to say? God doesn't grade against the curve. See, the curve, you didn't grade against perfection. You graded in comparison to everyone else. And that's the way that some people look at God. Like, well, in relation to them, I'm doing better than them. I'm not too far behind them. But when God grades us to pay off his debt, he doesn't need an 85. He needs 100. He grades against perfection. And there's only one person who can pay the price because there was only one person who was perfect. So when Jesus says it is finished, what was he Canceling. He was canceling a debt that you could not pay. I want, I want to give you one other illustration of Tetelestai. When, when a Roman soldier was convicted of a crime in, in, in the first century, here's what they do. The, the judge would do a certificate of debt, and, and they would engrave on this, on this plaque the man's name or the woman's name, and then whatever offense or crime they committed. So if you were a rapist, they would write your name in rapist, together and they would place that over your cell. So when everybody walked down the hall, they knew exactly why you were in that prison. Okay. When the judge, however, thought that you had served enough time, he would take that placard, that certificate of death, debt off of your cell. He would take it back to his chamber and he would stamp with his signet the word tetelestai over your offense. What, what am I saying? When Jesus said it was finished on the cross, what he was doing was taking all of your offenses and stamping them with his love and his blood and over your sins, over your debt, over your guilt, over your shame is the word to tell us that. Why? Because it is finished. He did it all on the cross. In that last breath, he was declaring completely and successfully that our debt was finished. So it was finished. That was our debt, okay? Everybody say, our debt was finished. Okay, number two, then what was the cost? What was the payment? Because if it was paid off, somebody had to write the check. The payment for my debt and your debt was Christ. Watch this. While we own the debt solely, only God has enough in his account to pick up the bill. So God has a plan to pay the wages that you and I can't pay. Here's where it gets tricky. He's going to pay the wages, but as we read it earlier, the wages of sin is death. Okay? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The, the, the penalty of sin is death. Think about that, that we've produced a debt so great that the only way you can pay it off is for something or someone to die. Are you tracking with me? So if the, if the penalty of sin is death and all of us have sinned and none of us can pay the tab, how in the world can the tab be paid by God if he cannot die? God must become a man. It's called the incarnation. It's, it's the story of Christmas. It's God putting on human flesh and skin in the form of a baby. Listen to me. There is no Easter without Christmas. Why? Because the only reason Christ was born was to die. And the only reason Christ died was to pay our debt. And the only reason he paid our debt, here it is, one word, love. That is it. That is the only reason why God sent his son for you was love. Watch this, Romans 5 eight. But God demonstrates, he doesn't just tell us about his love, he sent his son. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, while you were far away, while you were pushing him away, Christ died for us. That act of love canceled our debt. So watch this, huge debt, bigger love. Huge debt, Bigger love. For God so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? The life of his son. So on the cross, the death of Jesus Christ was the payment to God for the sins of you and me, which require death for its payment. It is the only form of payment. Wednesday, Rachel and I, we went to Walmart we had to buy some important stuff. We had to get uh, corn 
and potatoes and sausage for our crawfish boil. It's packed. Everybody's buying stuff for crawfish boil on Wednesday. And uh, so we're going to check out. And how many of you know they have self-checkout now? Which I think was invented by Satan. Because you, you get to self-checkout and it's almost like, you know, they need a tour guide, you know, to help people, to let them know that, hey, bruh, it's open. Go ahead. There's three jokers right there open. Pick one. You know, but you're trying to be nice, you know, because they may know I'm a pastor. And so you don't want to, like, be mean to them. So, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, you kind of clear your throat. You're like, <clears throat> <clears throat> you know, just letting them know that there's a register that's open. And so the, the people are getting, fri- y'all, people get frisky in Walmart. You know what I mean? And so there's, there's a lady. She's like, hey, it's open. It's open. It's open up there. And then the lady that's in front of me says, excuse me, it ain't open. And she's like, it is open. But, but finally what happens is she says, it, I have a credit card. And she says these words, um, at that register, cash is the only form of payment that Walmart accepts. Why am I saying that? When it comes to your sins in the eternal checkout line of heaven, the death of Christ is the only form of payment that God accepts. And I think there's going to be some frustrated people that get to heaven on that day and go up there and say, excuse me, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do all these things on your name? And God's going to say, you got the wrong form of payment because the only payment I accept is the death of my son. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I knew you not. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. So, The cross, the cross, why the cross? Why, 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 why the cross? Because the only payment that allows us to become righteous is through the cross. Isn't it? Look, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So two things happened when Christ died. Number one, he cancels our sin. But remember this, God cannot look at anything that's not perfect. That's why he can't look at sin. So not only does he cancel our sin, but then he deposits in us the righteousness of God. So not only are my sins canceled and he relieves that debt, now he fills me with his righteousness. Now when God sees me, he sees me as his own son. That's my boy. That's my daughter. That's what happens. Why? Because the death of Christ is the only payment that God accepts. So what was finished? Number one, our debt. Number two, what was the payment? The death of Christ. Number three, write this down. What was the proof of payment? In John 19, it says, Jesus says, it is finished. And he breathes his last breath. That's how he dies. Scripture tells us he was taken off that cross. He was placed in a borrowed tomb from a man named Joseph of Arimathea. So here you have Jesus. Uh, He is wrapped in linens. He is anointed for burial. He's placed in a borrowed tomb. He's laying on a rock in a tomb. I just want you to get this sense of finality, this sense of despair. And his disciples were hiding because they were scared of what the Jewish leaders were going to do. In John chapter 20, they're going to find, they're going to go to this tomb and they're going to go there early in the morning to anoint his body with oils and spices. But when they get there, they're going to experience a last second miracle. Have you ever experienced a last second miracle? I did. October 2nd, 2010, Tiger Stadium. <laughs> LSU's playing t- Tennessee. 28 seconds left. We're down by five. We're on the one yard line. All you have to do is get the ball across the goal line. 28 seconds. My 10-year-old Savannah could get a play in in 28 seconds. But how many of you know LSU? They will mess with you. They will mess with your salvation. 28 seconds. Here you see Jordan Jefferson in the court looking at Les Miles. Les Miles over there eating grass, <laughs> digging in his ear. Call a play. Just call a play. 
hike the ball, do something. They looking, he's looking, everybody. Nobody knows what to do. 28 seconds. Uh, then you see the, the clock. Five, four, three. He runs up to the ball, and he's still looking. They hike the ball over his head. Game over. People are leaving the stands, going to their car. The players are going to the locker room. On that Friday evening, 2,000 years ago, I think the enemy said to Jesus, Game over. But I think on that Sunday morning, the devil heard what we heard in Tiger Stadium on Saturday night. The previous play is under further review. What? Wait a minute. I was heading to the parking lot. What is going on? You come back into the stadium and you realize that Tennessee had 13 players on the field. All of a sudden, they line up for one more play because all it takes, baby, is one play. That's all Jesus needed was one play to get the ball over the, great, the, the goal line. It was called the cross at Calvary. Just give me one more play. One more play, and that next play, Charles Scott dove over, and there it was. The ruling on the field had been overturned. Too many people left the stadium. Too many people left the situation. But Jesus calls down from the press box of heaven says, I got a different vantage point. I see something different than you. I know that you think it's over, but they walk in the tomb, and here's what they say. He's not here. He's risen. He is risen. He is risen. That is the proof of purchase. He is risen. In fact, after the resurrection, this is how they greet each other for the first two centuries. When a church folk saw another church folk, they would say this. He is risen. Then the person they said it to would repeat back, he is risen indeed. So let's try it out. Ready? He's risen. He risen yes, he is. He is risen indeed. Why is it so important that he rose? When you use your credit card, you sign your name. You slide a copy to the merchant, and then you keep a yellow copy for yourself. Right? Why? The yellow copy's mine. The other copy's theirs. The white copy says bill paid. The yellow copy says here's my proof. The cross at Calvary said your bill is paid. The resurrection said here's your proof. Yeah. How, how do I know? How do we know that we haven't made a mistake serving Jesus? Well, I mean, why are we all here on a Sunday, on Easter Sunday, worshiping Jesus? Why not Buddha? Why, why, why not Muhammad? Why, why, why not Hare Krishna? Why not the 2,000 other Hindu gods? Because all them jokers still dead. I don't serve a dead God. I serve one that got up on a Sunday morning, folded his clothes, and resurrected. He is risen. The proof of our dead has been paid is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Watch what Paul said. Paul said this, and if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, if Christ wasn't resurrected, your debt wouldn't have been paid. And if your debt wouldn't have been paid, you still would have had the bill, which means the cross without the resurrection is meaningless. Y'all, he resurrected. It's the proof. Historically, it's proven. Biblically, it's proven. If you read John chapter 20, it says Mary got up early in the morning. She goes to the tomb to anoint the body. He's not there. She runs back. She tells uh, Peter and John, they run to the tomb, and, 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 and they realize he's not there, and they're looking for him, and they're not sure if he's resurrected yet, so they run back, and all the disciples are hiding. And in John chapter 20, it says this, on the evening of the first day of the week, the first day of the week is Sunday, so it's still Sunday. This is the day that he resurrected. When disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. He wasn't in his tomb. He wasn't in linen clothes wrapped on a rock. He was standing with them, and he says this, peace be with you. And after this, it says, he showed them his hands. And his side. What was he saying? Y'all want to know it's me, boys? Surprise. Here's the proof. Ta-da. Now it says, Vic, help me up. It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, I call him Diddy, 
One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. It says, uh, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but said unto him, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put mine in his side, I will not believe. He says, I need some proof. If you keep reading, it says a week later, the disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them this time. Through the doors, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. You see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But then is what he says about me and you. Blessed are those who have not seen the resurrection, yet still believe. In closing today, my question is, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the resurrection? Y'all know this wasn't Jesus's first resurrection party, right? It, it was just a week and a half before that he was with Lazarus. He gets the word that Lazarus, his best friend, was sick. By the time Jesus gets to the house of Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead for four days. You know what they call that in Alabama? They call that graveyard dead. He's dead, dead. He is dead. And it says Martha runs out to Jesus and says, Master, if you would have just been here, your friend wouldn't have died. And the very first words out of Jesus's mouth was not like, hey, let me figure something out. I I know, I'm sorry. The very first words out of his mouth is this. John chapter 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Resurrection is not just something that he does. It's the very essence of who he is. So when the resurrection walks into a room, he will take things that were dead and bring them back to life. He can do it with your marriage. He can do it with your finances. He can do it with your emotions. But most importantly, he wants to do it with your spirit and your soul. That when Jesus comes on the scene, he will speak to a dead heart and to a dead spirit and to a dead soul and say, arise again. He is the resurrection. So when I ask you, do you know the resurrection? I'm not talking about, do you know about Easter Sunday? I'm asking, do you know Jesus himself? He is the resurrection. Let me introduce him to you in a way that I think will be kind of fun. If I can get my notes in order. When I was a kid, I used to ride in a car with my mom. We used to listen to this guy's talk radio, Paul Harvey. Yeah, old, old people remember, huh? And, and, and I would remember two things. He would always say, and now you know the rest of the story. And he'd say, Paul Harvey, good day. I thought it was great. I was like, man, this, this guy's awesome. I, I remember there was this, this story that he did. It was called, So God Made the Farmer. And it was all about the working man and the industrial revolution and how hard work changed this country. And so he, he does this whole deal and it was very poetic. And he said, on the eighth day, God looked down and planned the paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made the farmer and does this whole thing about the farmer. Well, I think God looked at mankind and said, we needed something greater than a farmer. So God sent a savior. If you will, just give me about three or four minutes as I read this. I don't have this memorized. I do want to read it. It's called, So God Sent a Savior. I just want you to close your eyes and listen. In the fullness of time, God looked down on the crown jewel of his creation and said, these people are the apple of my eye, but somehow they managed to screw everything up all the time, so I'm going to have to go down there and fix things myself. So God sent a Savior. And God said, the man I made has made a mess of my image and distorted my intentions and polluted my instructions. Humanity has been reduced to a naked shame, eyes wide open, once beholding a wide open paradise, now locked up so tightly, unable to enter because rebellion reset the parameters. God said, I need somebody with nimble fingers, somebody who sows more than fig leaves, somebody who can seamlessly weave the broken hearts of humanity back to the loving purpose they were created for. Someone to silence the lies of the snakes, someone whose mouth has never tasted the poisonous bite of forbidden fruit. Someone to pull the tree of knowledge of good and evil up by its roots and carry it on his back. 
So God sent a savior. God said they need a chain breaker. The cries of my people in bondage are rising up before me and the sounds of their wailing have pierced the portals of heaven. So I'm sending a deliverer to put an end to their days of backbreaking and brick making. God said they need somebody that they can deliver, deliver them from dungeons and addictions, corners and caves from all the things that have made them enslaved. They need somebody who sees the dry ground clear through the sea of fear. Somebody who won't just stretch out his staff, but will stretch out his narrow pierced hand. So God sent a savior. God said they need a prophet. A messenger who means to make it abundantly clear that my God is Yahweh. When the small gods have failed, I need a smasher of Baal, somebody who can make a fool out of every idol they've tried to lift their heart to. God said, I need somebody who won't bow a knee to greed, who won't bow a knee to it's all about me, who won't worship status, position, or things, who can call down fire and then make it rain. Unafraid to taunt the enemy, proclaiming prophetically, turning the affection of my people away from what's worthless and back to my love. So God sent a savior. God said they need a rescuer. Someone who won't board the first boat bound for increased convenience. Someone who won't stall or flee. I need a rescuer with a heart like me, consumed with compassion and abounding in love. God said, I need somebody to prepare a table in the dark places, to invite the castaway and the thrown away, and to let them know that I am there. Even when they cause their own storms, even when they inflict their own pain, even when they end up in the belly of their self-imposed whale, they need someone who will never, who will never need, but always offer a second chance. Someone to plunder the depths of depth and destroy the riches of my grace to the ends of the earth. So God sent a savior. God said they need an overcomer. They need somebody who has a clean closet that is skeleton free, a story with no imperfections, a heart with no ill motives, someone with a steadfast sincerity and relentless resolve, a perfect lamb with the kind of confidence that makes its bed in the midst of lions, someone who can grab fear by the throat and render it powerless, who will shut the mouth of every liar, wield the hearts of every king and silence the roar of every enemy. Somebody who can pray prayers and sweat bloods and gardens. They need a water walker, God said, whose voice steals winds and waves, a man with perfect faith to narrate the rise and fall of chaotic conditions and to point the way through clouds of doubt and when the boat is breaking apart and the storms are raging on and visibility is getting worse. They need someone steady on his feet, trained to tread on the surface of the deep, someone who refuses to accept that walking is just an activity reserved for dry land, but who believes living fluid and walking in faith go hand in hand, bold enough to place the ball of his foot on the uncertainty of water, a peace speaker with a firm grip, strong enough to ca catch a slipping, sinking soul and carry that one that wavers back to the boat every single time. So God sent a savior. God said, I need a perfect son with the skills to lead a search party for every runaway and renegade, somebody to retrieve and redeem all of my lost sons and daughters and bring them back to me, to remind the world that no matter what they've done or where they've been, no matter how low they've fallen in the pig pen, that they still have a chance to be called my kids. Somebody who knows how to throw a welcome back party for the prodigal willing to light the grill and kill the calf in celebration for the one who still smells like the swine that he slept with the night before, willing to bury the rebellion of the world and the righteousness of his redemption. So God sent a savior. And on the third day, God said, I need a grave robber, somebody who can bear to be bruised by the knuckles and maligned by the heckles of a sinful man that he himself created and stared back into their faces of stone with a compassion carved more deeply than the canyons he constructed with a single word and yet not utter a single word, be silent before the shears, like a sheep being sent to the slaughter. Someone who can be beaten beyond recognition and buried in a borrowed tomb and still get up with the presence of mind to fold the strips of linen he was leaving behind. God said, I need a morning person to wake up after three days and stretch a little and then roll away his own stone. And somebody change the game of hide and seek that doesn't come to, the, he says, don't come to the grave looking for me, no way. Who will walk in the octagon and hand death its final and final defeat? God said, I need a hero, a conqueror who knows where death and hell keep the keys and how's the power to shake him down and take him by force. The one who strips sin bare and exchanges it for grace. The one who shatters every shackle with one word and liberates. The one who re revives lost passion for his great name's sake. The one who re redirects intentions, making every path straight. If you don't know his name, he is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the saving power. He is the second chance. So God sent himself in the form of a man. He sent a savior and his name is Jesus. And he said, it is finished. It's finished. Your debt has been paid. It was purchased with the life of Christ. The proof is the resurrection. And my question is, do you believe? With every head bowed and every eye closed in this place, that's the question, do you believe? I don't know how you walked in here. I don't know if you're a religious person, if you're part of this church or denomination. I don't know if you just know about church, if you just know about the resurrection. All those things are great, but the question is, do you really know the resurrection.
We all have a debt. He paid that debt. And he rose again. That's the proof of payment. And all you have to do to receive that debt is just open your mouth. The Bible says when they came to Jesus that week, they were shouting, Hosanna, 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 which means save me now. Save me from my sin. Save me from my debt. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wonder if there's anybody in here that will join the 19 others from the first service. Say, Pastor, that's me. I need to know the resurrection. I need my own life resurrected. I need him to save me now. If that's you, nobody's looking at me, would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of my life today. Would you just raise it very high up in the balcony? Yes, I see you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. On the floor, yes, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35. 36, I see you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. If you haven't raised your hand, I'm asking this last time just for you. Will you join the 36 others who said, I need to be resurrected today too. I need to be saved. Save me now. Is there anybody else? Thank you, 37, 38. Thank you, 39. Anybody else? 40. Thank you. In the balcony, 41. Very good. Church, we're going to pray out loud with 41 people today. To make Jesus the Lord of their life. We're not going to pray alone. We're going to pray with them. We're going to join our faith with theirs. Can we all say this out loud together like it's the very first time we're saying it? Will you say this with me? Jesus, save me now. Take my sin. Take my debt. I can't pay it by myself. But you can. And you did. On the cross, you took my sin, my shame, my guilt and you died for it you paid the debt that I couldn't pay and the proof is in the resurrection so today Lord I give my life to you I am saved I am born again in Jesus name and everybody said amen and amen come on can we give all those that prayed that prayer today a big big hand clap